Welcome back to another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. Since 2014, My Latin Life has been your trusted guide to traveling and living in Latin America. Today, I'm joined by Jen Ruiz. She's a travel writer, public speaker, internet entrepreneur, and she's been traveling full-time since 2018 and inspiring other women to travel along the way. Jen, how's it going? It's going great, Vance. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. I mean, I think at this point, you must be a podcast guest expert. I feel like every time I talk to you, you're uh, just getting off another podcast. How many, how many do you think you've done so far? Definitely more than 50. I've stopped counting after that point, um, but I try to do about two to three a month. Gee, that's insane. 50 plus? Yes. <laughs> and are they all reaching out to you? They are, uh, for the most part. Some are people that I meet at conferences. Some are other people that I've connected with online. Um, I have a profile on podcastguest.com, and so people reach out to me through there. So, yeah, for the most part. Okay, I'm writing that down right now, podcastguest.com. Not that I'm running out of guests or anything, but that's actually really cool. You, you're probably one of the most guested people I've, I've heard about. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I take that as a compliment. I, I like it too, because when I find um, someone that I enjoy listening to, I look at, I try to find like their whole back catalog and like listen to everything. And sometimes it's interesting going back to the early stuff, et cetera. So um, yeah, we're going to add to the catalog today. Let's do it. I'm excited. And we'll have to try to um, find some uh, themes or topics that you haven't gotten into. And we're definitely going to do that, but we have to do the obligatory uh, intro to who you are, Jen, just for, for the new audience. So would you mind giving us uh, a little bit of a background on yourself? Absolutely. My name is Jen Ruiz. I am a lawyer turned full-time travel blogger and author. In 2017, I set out to take 12 trips in 12 months while employed full-time as an attorney. I ended up quitting my job in 2018. And since then, I've given three TEDx talks, uh, public, self-published five best-selling books on Amazon, and been featured in outlets like Forbes, The Washington Post, and ABC News, um, the solo female traveler behind Jen on a Jet Plane, uh, where I help women travel solo and have over 290,000 social media followers. That's amazing. And uh, I guess a little inside baseball, we tried to record an episode, I think like six months ago. But what happened is I had, I was in an Airbnb in Vallarta, Puerto Vallarta, internet was terrible. We couldn't do it. Episode was not usable. But here we are six months later and we're going to do it. I remember back in March though, it was like right when you had just gotten your book deal and you had a lot of like excitement about that. And I'm wondering, I guess kind of six months ish after kind of uh, inking that book deal, tell us a little bit about uh, what, what's been going on with, uh, with the book deal and, and that whole process. Absolutely. So during the pandemic, I set out to get a traditionally published book deal uh, because I had self-published all my other books. But I knew that with a memoir, I wanted to have a publishing company behind me, possibly so that it could hit bestseller lists or maybe be made into a TV show one day. Um, they just have other resources that would help in that regard. And so I 
got the book deal, officially announced it in March. It was a five-figure book deal with an advance. Um, so that was really exciting. It's just great to always be paid, you know, for your work as a creator and somebody who works mm-hmm. online. And I spent a few months writing it. I definitely got to a point where the first draft was due at the end of July and I became really just like, nobody talked to me. Like I just have to write constantly. Um, and then I like around 10 PM, like the day before it was due, I was like, my eyes are glazing over and I'm like, I just, I just got to send what I got. It's the first draft. Like I just, mm-hmm. I have to let this go. Um, and I did, I sent it in. I was really happy to see that my editor um, was thrilled with the first draft. He said it delivered on everything that, you know, the book proposal promised. And I'm going to be having a specific editor assigned to me, a developmental editor in the beginning of this new year, whose only job it's going to be to edit my book. So I feel like the publishing company has really put a lot of effort behind me. They've really, you know, they've already found a Puerto Rican screenwriter to pitch the possible TV show. Um, So it's, it's exciting. It's definitely feels like the biggest accomplishment that I've had this year. That's amazing. So it does sound like it is uh, a bit of a long process, right? Um, uh, between getting signed and then all the drafts and the back and forth. And uh, like, what, when do you think you'll be able to get it out? We're aiming for fall 2023. So I'm hoping that, you know, the editing process goes smoothly. And I myself have already started marketing uh, because I know that, it's important to market and that if you want to hit a bestseller list, you have to have like 7,000 or so downloads before, you know, the book even launches on its first week because it's the first week numbers that count. And so I have just been very strategic about trying to build as much as I can, trying to share as much as I can and trying to encompass people in the journey themselves. Cause I think it's easy to look at a memoir and be like, okay, unless you're really a big fan of this person, like, does that apply to me? And so I want to make it not just about the year that I took 12 trips in 12 months, but encouraging other people to take that challenge themselves, even if they're employed full time, even if they feel like they don't have the money to do it, even if it's a smaller day trip in their own state, something like that. Um, But I I really believe that your life can be changed through travel. And hopefully this movement encourages others to do the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of Tim Ferriss. I think for a lot of people, uh, a lot of digital nomads, he was one of the early influences. And I always remember that he was optimizing for these bestseller lists and making sure that he had a really good launch and he he got on these lists early. So what tips would you have, uh, things that you've gleaned along the way in terms of ensuring a, a successful launch? It's so important and really all bestsellers, Gary V too, uh, recently he had a book launch and I had a friend in my book club be like, I have 12 copies of Gary V's book because he gave away a free NFT if I bought both copies, you know, and that was immediately I wrote down like little note, like, oh, that was an incentive that he used to try to get people to do bulk purchases um, because it really does come down to those numbers. And so I have been taking notes like crazy, like every little thing that I see, every book blogger that I see, you know, do a Twitter post about a list that they released or a review that they did. I take a screenshot. I save it to my folder of like people to reach out to. Um, I had like I saw somebody did something where they left 
signed copies of their books in the back of airplane seats. Like if you find this, pass it on kind of thing. And I was like, Oh, I love this idea. It's stealing that, you know? Um, so, so many things. I just have a, a running list of things that I've thought about for marketing. And I think that where most authors make the mistake is they think my publishing company will sell the book for me. That's the whole point of getting a publishing company, right? They're going to set up this book tour. They're going to do all these things. And I'm like, no, I know that they'll do some marketing, but ultimately you are your own sales machine. And so that's why I'm trying to launch this 12 trips in 12 months kind of global challenge that hopefully people will opt into. Mm -hmm. I have a Patreon that I'm launching for that where I'll be sharing tips and behind the scenes as I repeat the challenge. And so I plan to repeat the challenge this coming year in 2023 and also again in 2024. And in 2024, I'd like to have it, I'd like to have kind of jet on a jet plane endorsed group trips where I show up one day and I do kind of like a book signing and like a worldwide book launch um, through those group trips and also, you know, continue to monetize in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely sounds like there's a lot of creative growth hacking ways that people are approaching uh, book launches. Absolutely. It's really, um, Robert Kiyosaki had said, you know, it's called a best-selling book, not a best-written book. And I think that Ooh, it annoys a lot of authors. <laughs> yeah, a lot of authors are like, oh, that's horrible. Why would you not care about how good your book is? And you do, but the point is it can be the best-written book ever. And if nobody's buying it and nobody's reading it, then nobody knows that that book is good. Your book is just dying in the abyss of like the hundreds and thousands of books that are released every year. So it's really important to have sales top of mind and to build a community around that so that you continue to generate sales. So you continue to get people involved and, and referring your books. I think a lot of people make the mistakes of, you know, I'm just going to sell my books to my friends, to my family, to my followers, really your closest friends and family and, and like your closest followers, they should be your launch team. They should be the people that are getting your book for free so they can go and tell 10 other people about your book so they can leave you a five-star review. Like your audience are the millions of people around the world that you want to read your book. Mm -hmm. And um, I know, I remember last time we had talked, we were talking about blog writing and articles and uh, we, we even kind of got into the weeds about SEO and stuff like that. And it makes me wonder, like, while you're writing this book, are you also keeping up with the blog and putting out the thousand word articles and all that? Or did, 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 did the blog kind of have to take a backseat to the book? I am doing my best, but I feel like I am juggling so many plates in the air right now. <laughs> I really, at any point in time, I have so many things I should be doing. So I know I should be doing more writing for the blog. I've taken a lot of press trips this year. And so I feel a lot of pressure to get those articles written about those press trips in traditional publications. And every time I write for a traditional publication, my soul dies a little bit just because I know I'm getting paid like a couple hundred bucks, whereas something like that on my own website could be generating me money in perpetuity versus just the one-time small fee. Uh, and But I've been using it to appease the tourism boards to get more brand deals and, and to get you know more hosted trips and things like that. So um, sometimes my blog does fall to the wayside and that's currently something I'm working on because I have a new theme through Mediavine, which is the publisher network that pays me for the ads mm -hmm. that it hosts on my site. And so the theme that I have with them is supposed to make my blog 
faster, just more optimized, and it's not 100% working right. So right now I'm working on getting that fixed before I go back all in on writing for the blog. But every time I see travel bloggers that are like, yeah, I made $35,000 this month off of ad revenue. And I'm like, God damn it. I made $300 off this article for Matador Network. (laughs) So I really want to refocus on my blog moving forward. And I know that also I've just been stretched so thin with speaking at conferences, getting this book written, writing for the other major publications. I've had new bylines in Insider, Travel and Leisure, TripAdvisor. So it's been a great year, but at the same time, I do definitely want to hone in on the things that make me more money for Mm -hmm. less effort. Yeah. I mean, I I think one of the things I respect the most about what you're doing is that you're able to, I guess, play the game or play the system with all these like mainstream publications, TripAdvisor, Matador, Forbes. Uh, We were talking offline about doing something for Foders, Foders. I don't know how you pronounce it. Um, But like, how do you, how do you like really get in touch with all these big uh, publications and what, like, if there's um, a sort of indie writer that they're building a cult following on Twitter or something like that, but they're not really breaking into the mainstream, like, what advice would you have for that person? Yeah, I get this all the time. And people ask me, like, how are you getting all these press trips? What's because, you know, a lot of travel bloggers want to get press trips, but find it difficult. I think it helps because I can offer value in two different ways. I can have both these traditional publications. I call it Foders. I I think that's the way you pronounce it, but I'm not 100% sure. Now you've made me second guess it. Um, but I, I can offer them placement in these kind of what they would call earned media. And then I can also have my blog and my social media channels where I'm promoting the destination as well. And so I try to play both angles and it definitely does feel like I'm stretched thin. It definitely does feel like sometimes I want to be getting paid for a press trip. A lot of these bigger publications, they don't accept paid press trips or they don't accept press trips even at all. Um, So it can be difficult if you're straddling the line between influencer and travel writer. But I think that that's the pro is that every time I get an article published in one of these major publications, my inbox is flooding with invitations. I've had to turn down a culinary trip to Israel, you know, a day of the dead trip to Mexico. Uh, Just recently here, I had like two other major hotels in Puerto Rico invite me that I had to pass on because I'm on a tight deadline for the Mm -hmm. Fodor's 2023 guidebook. So And I have to cover just the chapters that I've been assigned. So I have to prioritize those. So I think for anybody that's starting out, um, pitching is really important. So for instance, I have have somebody that asks me all the time, like, oh, how do you get these articles? And I saw an article the other day, a, a call for pitches on Twitter. I'm constantly strolling Twitter. And I had tagged her in it because she is in that country now that they were requesting articles from. And it was like five days later when she logged onto Twitter and saw that. And by that point, that tweet had been deleted because the editor had found somebody to write that. So I would suggest being on Twitter literally every single day. I just got assigned two articles for Lonely Planet because I was on Twitter and I responded that morning, like within an hour of the call for pitches being sent. Um, Mm -hmm. So, and then I think once you know, I think it it helps to go that way versus doing like, oh, I want to write for Lonely Planet. Let me find their submission guidelines and let me pitch an editor off the bat. If somebody's already on Twitter looking for a specific article, like, you know, they want to commission that article ASAP. 
And it's different than just kind of cold pitching an editor that may or may not even be accepting pitches at the time. So I think Twitter is a great place for leads. And then from there, your idea is more important than what it is, you know, than your resume or other bylines that you have. So if you have an idea that really fits with what the editor is looking for, you have one or two examples of your writing, uh, I would pitch everybody. I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that any publication is above you or beyond you. Um, so long as you can show that you have a good idea, you know, bonus if you have photos to help them, you know, so that they don't have to source their own and, and make it short, concise, but really answering their call. And I, and I imagine, you know, you're not emailing pitches at Forbes.com, like you, you're really building a bit of a network on Twitter. Like, who are you looking for? These are like editors specifically and sort of, I guess, like content manager people or like, how, how do you know when you come across a, a Twitter profile uh, like that that's like the person that that needs to be pitched? So a lot of them, thankfully now Twitter knows that I like this content, so it recommends it to me because I retweet it all the time, like call for pitches, things like that. You can use those hashtags, hashtag journal requests, hashtag call for pitches, hashtag, um, you know, and a bunch of other things. Um, but if you see them, I, I retweet them a lot and you can kind of see what are the hashtags that they've used. And then even if it's one that I don't think I'm going to submit to, I'll still follow that editor. So I'll have them in my timeline moving forward. And then you can, you can look for certain editors through Twitter itself. Like you can just search for the publications that you're looking for and see who pops up as having that in their bio. Some editors have their email address already in the bio. So that's easy. I absolutely try to find a personal email address rather than a random submission inbox. The difference is for folders, they definitely just send everybody to the main submission inbox and then review that there. Um, but even then I have editor contacts there, you know, if I really want to to make an appeal to them personally. And I do recommend that you email a person versus a bulk submission box because it's it's just so easy to get lost there. Right. Um, and then, and yeah. So do you, do you, and sorry if this is in the weeds for people that, that aren't totally into this, but I am kind of fascinated by it because it's a very competitive space. And so do, when, you, when you're pitching them, are you pitching like one specific article and you're saying like, here's like the top 10 foods in Costa Rica, uh, Puerto Rico or something, or do you give them like a couple different options or, or like what kind of like approach do you take, uh, on your pitch? Yeah. So I would start off leading with the article. So I'd say something like, Hey, so-and-so I saw your call for pitches on Twitter for this, please accept the following pitch. And then I would put one or two different possible headlines. So like top 10 foods in Costa Rica, 10 foods in Costa Rica, you can't miss. These 10 delicious foods are Costa Rican favorites, you know, things like that, alternative headlines that might be catchy. Mm -hmm. And then I'll put like three to five sentences. Um, when you're going to Costa Rica, these are some of the foods that you can't miss. This article will cover X foods. I have pictures to accompany the article. Um, and then after that, I'll say, by way of background, my name is Jen Ruiz. I've been featured in these outlets. I'm an award-winning travel journalist. Please find writing samples below, period. And then send that out. There you go. That's awesome. And um, so you, so how many, how many books did you self-publish first? Like three or four? Five. 
Five. And then, so this, uh, the one with the mainstream publication, this will actually be your sixth book. Correct. It's amazing. Does that, does that represent like a significant part of your like income in terms of like passive income and everything off Amazon and, and whatnot? It definitely did pre-pandemic. It hasn't fully bounced back yet. Same as my blog traffic. Um, once all travel ceased, I saw a big hit. So I saw book sales completely in the travel realm just went down. Nobody was looking for travel blog things. And it's come back, but it's not back in the same force that it was pre-pandemic. So I do think with book sales, it can be lucrative, but you have to keep writing more books because mm -hmm. the more books you have, the more of a back catalog you have, the more chances that somebody's going to read one of your books and be like, oh, I like this. Let me go and see what else she's written. Um, versus if you just write one book, you only have one lead out in the world kind of thing. And so most yeah. six-figure authors have actually written like 20 books or more. I think that's the statistic for self-published wow. authors. And are you sort of like repurposing material from the blog and the blog posts and sort of like combining like every blog post on Puerto Rico and then and then like filling it out even more? Or, or when you do your books, is it something like totally from scratch? Uh, no, I do repurpose. Like, so I had written a lot about affordable flights initially, and then I took a lot of that content and just compiled it into my affordable flight guide. Sometimes I do it vice versa too. I'll look at the book and be like, what is in the book that I haven't written a blog post about yet that I can just easily kind of copy paste reword kind of thing. Uh, and so I think that that's an opportunity a lot of bloggers miss, especially the bloggers that are writing like three to 5,000 word posts on a particular destination, on a particular topic, whatever it is that they have an expertise on. Maybe it's mm -hmm. national parks, maybe it's RV travel, whatever the case may be, but you already have a lot of that content on your site. And so it should be easy for you to repurpose that in a way that makes sense because you already know your main pillars. You already know the audience pain points. Uh, you already have, you know, a lot of material about that. So it's not like starting from scratch and it should be just a matter of like kind of fitting things into the boxes. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I definitely want to, I think, I think everyone wants to be like a published author. So kudos to you for, you know, taking the bull by the horns and, and getting published, putting out self-published books. Now, finally uh, a mainstream publication and, it's just so awesome because I think I think it's on the, everyone's bucket list to do this. It is. So actually something like 80% of people want to write a book, but only 3% actually do. And so I think the key is to announce it. Tell somebody, hey, I'm writing this book. Give yourself and give your audience a deadline so you have accountability because a lot of people just sit on it and then they stay quiet about it and then they never actually write it. Uh, that's why NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, which is now in November, is so popular because it gives you that sense of public accountability, gives you that motivation to get something done by a deadline. Uh, even my memoir, you know, having that deadline of like first draft is due August 1st. So uh, July 30th, I'm sitting here really scrambling. Um, so because you have to get it done by that time. And just having that versus the kind of you know, nebulous, oh, one day I'll get this done, then it, then one day turns to never. Um, so I think having that accountability, having a deadline set, and then also getting out of your own head that it has to be perfect 
all the time. Uh, a lot of people think I have to kitchen sink my first book. It has to be completely, you know, this madness opus, my masterpiece. And really, you're, it's unlikely that your first book is going to be your most popular book. Um, but also, you want to break things up into smaller, more digestible segments. Like nobody wants the entire encyclopedia on like everything travel. That's intense. Um, so like my first book was just affordable flights. I could have made it affordable travel and talked about hotels and car rentals and tours. And then that would have been too much. And so just having it be about affordable flights gave me the space to break out further and then do more more books about those other topics. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely makes sense. Uh, random question. So where, where do you write in? Is it Google docs or. So my mainstream articles, yes, usually Google docs because most editors work through Google docs, but I tend to write my books in Microsoft word. Oh, I know. Really? Okay. I know. I know. <laughs> I think I pay monthly for it too. It's kind of crazy because I was like, damn, I can't just buy a, a subscription. Like I can't just buy the box set like you used to back in the day and install it in your computer because Apple definitely doesn't come with it. And I don't want to use pages or whatever it does come with uh, my MacBook. So I, yeah, I pay for Microsoft. It feels comforting, old school. Maybe I'm old myself. I'm almost 35. Um, but I just feel like I can trust that it's on my computer and it's in a platform that I'm already able to use, kind of just feel comfortable with. And then I always back it up on a flash drive when I do any significant progress on it. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. We're going to call that first segment, um, <laughs> blogging tips and, and writing. And now let's, let's get into some other topics. Um, let's talk a bit about Puerto Rico. This is the My Latin Life podcast. And we're all about sort of learning more about different countries in Latin America, learning about what it would be like to live there, the experience, the culture, everything like that. And so, um, yeah, you were, Jen, you were born in Puerto Rico, but you grew up uh, on the main, in mainland United States and moved back to Puerto Rico, I think, about three years ago. Um, what's it like making the transition from, I guess, the mainland U.S. to, to Puerto Rico? It is really, really hard. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people think of island life and just think, oh, you're living in paradise. There's a lot of difficulties that come with being on an island, um, particularly in Puerto Rico. 85% of food is imported. Um, so I found, you know, when I came here, I would go around the supermarkets and I'd be like, I can't believe this. They're selling like oranges and tomatoes with mold already on them and you don't even get a discount. And I'd be so up in arms and I would like be videotaping it as if anybody cared about this evidence. And then now I'm just like, yeah, it is what it is. I'll find like the one semi-moldy tomato and just cut around it. Um, mm -hmm. So that's been interesting. An adjustment. Medical care has been an adjustment. I, you know, by the time people need specialists, they usually don't want to wait like nine months to see a doctor, but that's definitely the case here. Um, so you have to make an appointment. Like if I wanted to make an appointment now, it would be for six to nine months from now with a specialist. Um, so wow. that's been challenging. Um, and in general, just, uh, yeah, it's not been easy. It's, there's definitely a lot of difficult laws. Uh, there are tax incentives here in Puerto Rico for digital nomads, which in and of itself 
carries a lot of uh, kind of stigma and resentment with the locals. You'll see sometimes murals like Green Go Go Home kind of thing. There's a whole Green Go Go Home movement, um, like Puerto Rico's not for sale kind of thing. So it can be difficult. And I think that those are the realities of living here that people don't necessarily know, aren't aware of, aren't prepared for before they move here. So a lot of people don't end up lasting more than two years here on the island. Um, mm-hmm. So it is it is interesting. Uh, but I would say the pros are that it's always nice, right? I do enjoy living in eternal summer. I had something similar in Florida, but it just feels a little bit different when you're on the bubble of an island, particularly during the pandemic. There was not as much panic where I live, maybe in the metro area of San Juan, where there's a bunch of police and things like that. But where I live, is it's a little bit more rural. And like, people were just kind of living their lives, you could still go to the beach, you could still do other things. Um, So it didn't feel as super panicked as if I would have been in a big city in the US. Like I grew up in Philadelphia and a lot of people, you know, are constantly on the news and they're constantly feeling the panic of like the masses of people around them. Um, And so it felt like where I was, it didn't feel that crazy. People really didn't take up much issue with like wearing masks and things. So I just kind of like went about life as normal, just wearing a mask into Walgreens and, um, Yeah. And I actually enjoyed that some of the beaches were less crowded. So like I went to Flamenco Beach in Culebra, which is one of the top 10 beaches in the world. And I had the beach literally to myself. And I was like, this is pretty cool. It's probably the only time I'll have to be in one of the top 10 beaches. And I'm the only person here. I did a whole, whole photo shoot there. Um, I had a great time just like hanging out. Um, So it feels relaxed in that sense. Definitely you learn patience. Uh, I've had a lot of adventures in fast food ordering. Um, So I've learned now to just say the number, like I just want the number one. Um, Because if I get get too fancy with it, like I ordered four chicken nuggets one time in McDonald's because I just wanted four chicken nuggets, just like a little snack. And they Mm -hmm. misunderstood me to mean like four boxes of 10 chicken nuggets. And so I ended up with 40 chicken nuggets and a stomach ache. So there's definitely things to get used to on the island, um, pros and cons. But I think the people that stick it out, stick it out because they actually want to be here. They actually enjoy it here. The power can be difficult. The internet, you mentioned that in, in Mexico, the internet here and the power here do go out quite frequently. So as somebody who works remotely, I have a portable generator that I have and I keep nearby. Um, And it can be frustrating at times. I've been on a live session with Mediavine actually, and then cut out for like two minutes. And then I had to get back on on my phone. And two minutes when you're live is is a long time. So um, it can be a little anxiety inducing in that sense. So I think there's there's pros and cons. Um, But I have enjoyed being able to be somebody that's discovering other parts of the island. And now because so much of the publicity here is done in Spanish, I think I really do stand out because I'm somebody who writes in English and for English speaking publications. And so when these publications are looking for somebody on the ground, a local expert on something, I do have a leg up and that's allowed me to get featured in a lot of places. Yeah. And I guess you have a bit of a unique experience coming from a Puerto Rican background. So it's very different than just like a normal, you know, New Yorker or something moving there where, you know, you're sort of rediscovering your roots 
And, you know, when you're getting into conversations with the locals, you you must be sort of like telling them like soy bariqua and, and stuff like that. And uh, but it's kind of like an interesting dynamic, right? Like how how how's been um, how's it been to sort of like navigate that? That's also been challenging because I look white and I am white passing. And so it's been interesting. And I'm also 100% Puerto Rican. So it's really, it's really interesting because sometimes I'll start talking to somebody in Spanish and they'll be like, oh, you have an accent. Uh, where are you from? And I'm like, I'm from Puerto Rico. And, um, and it's, you know, people don't believe it. People see me and immediately think I'm like a tourist or something, or they don't understand. They just, it takes me a while to convince people. And since there is that growing dichotomy of like us versus them when it comes to the foreigners, um, it's been interesting for me because I, I have a lot of digital nomad friends. I have a lot of foreigner friends here on the island. And at the same time, I have a lot of local business friends here on the island that, you know, are born and raised here. And so it's been interesting for me to see both sides. I feel like I'm Switzerland almost, right? Like I feel bad for the push to push foreigners out, especially when I know people that are doing a lot of good work here on the island. I have a friend who started a farmer's market and it's so hard to start a farmer's market here just with legalities and getting the space for it. Like she's already had to move it twice. And that farmer's market helps over 80 local vendors. Like it's an amazing farmer's market. She's lived here for 10 years and she still gets a lot of hateful comments on her videos and things because she's blonde um, and just very clearly looks non-Puerto Rican. And so to me, that is hard to reconcile because I know that she loves the island. I know that she's doing good work for the island. I know that she doesn't necessarily deserve to be targeted in that sense. Um, and so, and at the same time, I also understand where the Puerto Ricans are coming from, where that fear is coming from, the yeah. fear of displacement, you know, the fear of the constant sense of being less than that comes with being in a territory where you feel like, you know, you've always been told that you're not good enough or that you want to be Americanized to be valid and assimilate. So it's been really weird for me to walk the line and to see both sides and also to want to equally represent both sides. Like I want nothing more than for people to wander beyond San Juan, the capital city, and to really see what the island has to offer to support those small businesses. I had a video that went viral on TikTok the other day about a small chocolatier and it did really well. I know it drove a lot of business. And then one of the comments was like, oh, we should be gatekeeping this. And I'm like, why would you want to gatekeep this? You want this man to have all of the success, right? Like he needs traffic for his business to succeed. He's invested a lot into this brick and mortar chocolate shop. Like it's my goal to help elevate those businesses because without business, they're going to go under. And Puerto Rico is constantly facing PR struggles when it comes to hurricanes and earthquakes and people wondering if it's safe on the island. So I'm really trying to change the narrative and to drive people beyond just the regular Marriott's, Hilton's, you know, and, and go see more of the island and elevate those local businesses. Like it, it makes me happy when I can give a voice to businesses that really deserve it. Um, so it's been an interesting walking the line between the two um, mm -hmm. and wanting to see the best for this island. For sure. Um, and also about Puerto Rico. So let's talk a bit about like the digital nomad community, the expat community. 
Um, I feel like you're probably someone that's involved in like organizing events and dinners and, um, you know, attending conferences and stuff on the island. There's obviously tons of stuff going on, crypto events, et cetera. Um, give us a bit of a feel for what sort of the digital nomad scene is like, uh, I guess, in San Juan and, and elsewhere on the island. Absolutely. So there's a big digital nomad scene, again, which can be the source of discord on the island sometimes, but some hubs include San Juan, obviously, because everybody knows and people move there. Rincon has traditionally for a long time, for decades, been considered kind of a foreigner place where people go because of the surfing, because they have more vegan food over there, um, beautiful sunsets that's on the West Coast. So that's for a long time been a place where people come and settle. And then I live mm -hmm. in an area in the Southeast part of the island that's a big resort community that has filled with different digital entrepreneurs, e-commerce people. Um, and so what I love most about living here is that people understand what I do. I don't have to explain it. Whereas normally I tell somebody I'm a travel writer, I'm a travel blogger. And they're like, Oh, how do you make money doing that? Is that a real job? Um, and here I'm surrounded by people who make seven figures, eight figures doing that. Some of the most influential podcasters, John Lee Dumas lives here from entrepreneurs on fire. Oh yeah, um, sure. And his wife hosts both uh, Palma's Ladies Bosses group. So she has a group for female entrepreneurs here that we meet monthly and we do uh, just different talks to help each other's business and, you know, just different bonding activities in that sense. I'm in a book club with her. Um, so there are a lot of activities here for people that are like-minded. Um, as far as crypto, I do have a lot of friends here that are big in crypto and are constantly giving speeches and doing events about that. Puerto Rico is actually home to the first NFT gallery in the world. Um, so that's an art gallery that's in San Juan. I'll be there for a fundraising event later this month. Um, so there is a lot of buzz around that and, and people here that are investors. Um, yeah, so it's a big community. Mm-hmm. And I, I've definitely seen some tweets from you where you um, highlight underrated spots for digital nomads on the island. I think one of them was um, either Rincon or Maya West or something on the West Coast. Um, like, what are some of like what are some cool like underrated towns in Puerto Rico for people who want to get out of San Juan? Yeah, Rincón is definitely one of them. Uh, Mayagüez and Aguadilla are both around the Rincón area. They're on the West Coast. I love Ponce because it's so unique. It has a great history. It has its own port. It has its own airport. You can actually fly from JetBlue to on JetBlue from Ponce to New York City, you know, straight, uh, nonstop. So that's a good alternative to the San Juan airport. Aguadilla also has an airport if you wanted to fly into the West Coast. Um, but Ponce has architecture from so many different European influences. Like they have a big pink mm -hmm. house. And I mean, it just, it's a really cool city um, that I think doesn't get enough, it doesn't get enough credit really. Um, where I am, it, it, all around the East Coast is wonderful. So Fajardo, Luquillo, um, Fajardo is very residential. Luquillo has a lot of, uh, it's where 
technically where El Yunque is located. Um, and it's still about a half hour drive from San Juan. So you're easy to reach the metro area, um, but you have a lot of beautiful beaches. Uh, there's the kioscos de Luquillo, which are the uh, kiosks that have, you know, bars where you would have people listening to reggaeton music. So that would be your scene kind of thing on a Friday night. You can hear the music sometimes while you're on the beach, like at least the bass thumping because uh, it's pretty loud. And um, <laughs> so I think you would enjoy that. And they have a bunch of different street food there and, and things that you can you can buy there. Um, yeah, so all up and down the East Coast. And, and when you're on the East Coast, you have easy access to Ceiba, which is an airport that you can use to get to Vieques and Culebra, the two islands that are off the East Coast of Puerto mm-hmm. Rico that are populated and uh, a lot of people live there Yeah, it looks well. super beautiful. Mm-hmm. So would you say the East Coast or East Side of, of Puerto Rico is like more expat heavy? I don't know about expat heavy. I mean, yes, probably. I Although I do think, again, the West Coast carries its own just because Rincon has always kind of traditionally been that because it's a surf town. And so people have always come from around the world to surf there. And they have a bunch of different businesses, longstanding businesses. But the East Coast is the more... I mean, it's all densely populated. There's a lot of people living on this small island, but I would say the East Coast has a lot happening in terms of businesses, uh, you know, residential properties and and ease of access to San Juan. It's much more difficult to get to San Juan from the West Coast um, or even from Ponce than it is from up and down the East Coast. Okay, good to know. Good to know it's kind of spread out between the South, East, West. Yeah, once you're in the southwest, like Cabo Rojo is absolutely beautiful. That's where you'll find the pink lakes. That's where they have, um, you know, Playa Sucia that unlike its name implies is actually one of the cleanest, nicest beaches. (laughs) Um, It actually reminds you of like a Pirates of the Caribbean like scene because it has these gorgeous cliffs and uh, beautiful lighthouse there. So it's it's a great place, but once people are located out there, like I had friends that were living out there for a little bit, they were originally from Mexico and they felt a little bit isolated out there. They definitely didn't make their way to San Juan very often because it can be a two and a half, three hour drive. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas where I am, you know, I'm in San Juan within 45 minutes to an hour. Um, So I think that's what makes the East coast a little bit more appealing. Okay, cool. And then I guess last question, like what's up if you were living in like the middle of the island, which I feel like would be cool, a little bit, a little bit better if, you know, a hurricane were to come by or something. And let's just say you were in Kawas or one of these towns kind of like in the middle of the island. Is that, that must be a pretty cool vibe with like jungles and, and stuff like that. Kawas is like an urban sprawl. So that's definitely not secluded. There's a lot of people living in Caguas. Um, It kind of gives me anxiety to drive around Caguas because there's so many cars there at any point in time. Um, But more rural areas would be somewhere like Utuado um, that's in the mountains. It's absolutely beautiful. You'll have lake houses there with like floor to ceiling windows right by the water. Um, You'll be, you know, really smelling the fresh air. Another one is Villalba. That's a really nice place kind of along the south coast uh, middle um, where you'll you'll be surrounded by nature and you'll feel more secluded. The danger there when it comes to hurricanes is if there is a lot of water, there can be mudslides. 
And so that can, that can make it difficult. And then it's also, these are the places that are slower to get power back. So they're always going to prioritize the San Juan metro area to restore power before beginning on the other places. And usually, yeah, yeah, usually the mountainous areas are kind of the last ones to, to be restored. Fair enough. Um, well, yeah, thank you for that overview. We, we pretty much covered the whole island of Puerto Rico, uh, east, west, and the center. And I thought maybe for the next section, uh, we could talk a little bit about travel hacks and, and stuff like that. So your very first book was all about affordable flights and would love to get um, some tips from you on how people can go about finding affordable flights, especially now, because I find that it's just way more expensive than it was like two, three years ago with maybe because of oil prices or whatever. But like, for example, um, I'm in Portugal right now and I was looking at flights to Brazil and it was like $1,000. And I was like, what? Because I took this same flight two years ago and I was finding it for like 150 bucks all day. And it's just like not really like that anymore. I don't know. Uh, But yeah, I would love to hear some tips on finding affordable flights. Absolutely. Yeah. Flight prices have skyrocketed. I think I saw something where it's gone up like 30% in the last few months alone. And that is attributed to a lot of things. Gas prices being one of them. Another one being the pilot shortage um, that they're having, which is actually really concerning for me because if the pilots that they have retire, there are no younger pilots in the pipeline to take over. So at some point we are going to be hit with that and have to kind of figure that out. Um, So I always think, and I still think that there are deals to be found. Like I'm flying to Athens uh, during the holidays uh, for $5. I'm flying home to see my family uh, through Southwest and JetBlue. And those are all like $300 round trip flights um, for Thanksgiving and Christmas, which are, you know, notoriously the worst times to travel. And so Mm -hmm. I think a couple of things help. I think being flexible always helps. So if I was looking for a flight to Athens, I wouldn't be looking just from San Juan. I probably wouldn't even be looking from San Juan period. I'd first go and see what are the flights to Athens from all the major hubs, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Atlanta, DC, Boston, New York. So first I'm looking up and down the East coast to see what's the most affordable flight I can get there. And being flexible, not just with your departure airport, but with your arrival airport as well. Um, I think that helps you save more money. And then you kind of piecemeal your own trip together, particularly from Puerto Rico, because I'm already going to have a stop either way. Nothing's going to fly nonstop to the island. There is one nonstop flight from San Juan to Madrid. But for the most part, I know I'm connecting somewhere. And so I'm really flexible with that connection. And I know I can get to New York, to Miami, to Atlanta, for a reasonable price on these budget airlines um, if I can find the flight from there. So that's one thing, being flexible on both your arrival and your departure airports. And to that same end, uh, I get flight alerts every day from different bunch of different flight alerts, but my favorite is Scott's Cheap Flights. And so I never specify my departure airport because I want to see all the deals. Because if there's a deal from New York to Japan for 300 round trip, I can get to New York. I don't need that deal to be, you know, from my airport. Um, So keeping flexibility in that sense, getting flight alerts so that you're aware when there is a deal, uh, taking advantage of budget airlines. So there have been a lot of budget airlines that have launched recently, uh, Avilo, Breeze, Play, 
Air, Airways, that's a new Icelandic carrier, uh, Norse Atlantic Airways, French B, that's taking you to Tahiti for $300. Um, so there are a lot of new budget airlines. And I think so many people, you know, poo poo on them like, oh, I don't want to fly Spirit. I don't care if I fly Spirit or not. I really just care that I get there safely. And, you know, everything else is a bonus. So yeah, um, I, I flew French B and it was legit. I, I, I flew it from like Paris to New York and it was super cheap. You see, that's exactly it. And I think so many people are like, I only fly Delta. I only fly American. Like, okay, well then you're going to pay the prices that they decide to charge you. Um, you know, I had, I was looking for a flight for uh, my partner coming back from Athens and he was like, oh, Air Europa, this has horrible reviews. I'm like, why are you even looking at the reviews? I'm looking at the price. It says $500. Like that's what we're looking for. Everything else is three times that price. I would hop on that price in a second, you know? Um, I wouldn't even, I don't care to go look at the reviews because honestly, somebody has had a bad experience on literally every carrier. Somebody hates Delta. Somebody hates American, you know? And so none of that matters to me. What matters to me is that the price is right, that the, you know, ideally it's nonstop, that'd be even better. Um, and so those are all things that I take into consideration. And then when it's something that I know is going to be tough, I rely on points and miles. So I knew that getting to Athens was going to be tough uh, during the holiday season. So I booked that with points and miles. And these past two years that people have just been doing online shopping, you know, constantly charging everything to a credit card. If you pay for anything on a debit card, you are wasting your money. Like imagine paying for something and not getting something out of it. Like that's crazy to me. Whereas if I buy something on a particular card that I'm trying to meet the minimum spend threshold, like I now have buy one, get one flights on Southwest till the end of 2023, because I have the Southwest companion pass, because I just decided to put all my spending on my new Southwest credit card early this year. And then already halfway through the year, I had spent enough that I had gained the points necessary that I now get to always bring a travel companion with me for free. And so I think people really sleep on travel credit cards. I think they worry that they're living beyond their means or that it's going to affect their credit score. And really, if you use it like a debit card, if you pay it back, you know, once you make the purchase, there, there are so many ways that having a travel credit card can benefit you, but not the least of them being that you have points and miles to redeem for these really expensive destinations that you wouldn't be able to reach otherwise. Yeah, definitely makes sense. Uh, so what are some of your top credit cards right now? So for anyone getting started, I always recommend doing just a co-branded airline credit card from an airline that you know operates a lot near you. My first one was the JetBlue card. It's a $1,000 minimum spend, which is pretty easy to reach within three months. And then you get a set amount of points. And then you take those points, you log into JetBlue, and it's really easy to redeem. You don't have to do math. You don't have to worry about transfer. You don't have to worry about point values. You have X points already and you just go and see what flights you can get for that so i think that's the best first step and then once you're looking at something a little bit more advanced um the chase sapphire preferred currently uh is is my favorite card but the reserved is a higher level and they actually just have a new 
uh, bonus incentive. I think they're up to 80,000 miles. They include, you know, a bunch of different things in there, a $300 yearly travel credit, uh, free lounge access, mm-hmm, lounge access, global entry, TSA pre-check that they paid for just a bunch of things. So chase is always a good one. Um, the Amex Platinum people like for that same reason for the lounges. Uh, I actually really enjoyed my city uh, thank you card. That one actually reimbursed me when I wasn't able to take a trip to Egypt because my partner got sick. And so we had everything already prepaid and I was able to get all those expenses back because I had booked it with my travel credit card. It took a few months of going back and forth with them, but ultimately I got that money back. And, you know, that was travel insurance that was just built in through the credit card. Rental car insurance, you know, every time I go and rent a car, I I use the Chase card for that um, instead of, you know, paying crazy amounts for the daily rates there. So it it can be really beneficial. and, And those are some of my favorites. Do you ever do like transferring the miles between the airlines and from Marriott to this, to that? I've never gotten, I like, I collect points for sure on, on, on like with Delta and with Chase and a couple different ones, but I've never got into the whole like transfer between this and that. And you get 1.5 bonus, blah, blah, blah. Do you get into that? Sometimes, uh, if I see something already, so if I already know I'm looking for a flight that maybe a transfer partner would have for less money on their own site, I'll check it out and I'll consider that before I make my final booking, but I don't live my life via spreadsheets. Cause then I think also, then you get super worried about like, what is the maximum point value that I'm getting for this point that I'm spending? And then you might get locked up and be like, I'm not going to spend it. Cause I don't think it's enough. And I think the points are there to spend and they may lose value moving forward. The same routes may not be available. Like so many things can happen. So I also think that there's something to be said for that kind of paralysis and inaction where you're like, I want to make sure I'm getting the absolute most out of this. Um, so I'll sometimes just double check. I'll double check and see, you know, maybe this is an Air France deal. Let me see what it's like on the Delta site to, you know, is it less points if I book it through Delta than if I book it through the Air France website? Um, so I might check partners just to see what their rates are for that same flight. Um, and then if it's something lower or I feel like I, I'd get more points value there, then maybe I transfer it, you know, to one or the other. And, but I really just do like a one or two double checks kind of thing. I don't go super crazy and like making sure I'm milking it for everything it's got. Right. Okay. I have a question for you, Jen. So I, I I'm still, I, what I would like to know is some websites that can do what I would like to do. And let's just say that you want to get to Europe from Puerto Rico, kind of the example you gave before, but it doesn't have to be Greece and you're down, you're, you're down to be, to, to basically arrive anywhere in Europe. And then maybe you'll just take a, you know, a, a local train or something between countries, but I've never seen a website where I've just been able to put like, okay, put me in Germany or Netherlands or Belgium either one of the countries is fine and then I'll figure it out from there. Have you seen anything like that? Yes. I use Google flights for that. Um, so I will put in a designated departure airport or airports. I actually was just doing this recently from Athens because I knew I wanted to go somewhere after Athens and take advantage of already being over there. And so I was like, where can I get to from Athens for really cheap on this date? 
And so I put in that as a departure airport. I put in the date and then I just looked in the map and it'll tell me like, you know, Barcelona, $200, uh, Cairo, $139, Istanbul, like $70 kind of thing. And then I could pick based off of that. You can zoom in and out. And then if you zoom in more, then it'll show you more airports in that region. Um, You can limit it to show you nonstop only. And that was something I was definitely interested in. I was like, can I get to Madeira from Athens? And then I was like, what are the nonstop flights that go from Athens to anywhere near Madeira? And like, that was how I was searching was through the map feature and just leaving. Map view. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then Skyscanner also has an explore feature that's meant to be the same, but I just think Google flights is really intuitive for that. Um, so that's where I usually go to browse. And I think that's great. If you're somebody that just knows you have a departure airport, you're flexible. Um, that's a great place to go and just let the prices take you. Okay. So Skyscanner, Google flights, has there any been any like, up and coming tools that you've seen in, in the, you know, affordable flights market? Um, I think that there's always new apps coming out, um, always constantly. Uh, I don't know that it's necessarily new or up and coming, but I know, uh, Hopper has their own kind of flight alert version that you can get free flight alerts through if you don't want to sign up for any paid flight alerts. Um, I know that there's always new. Yeah, that's. I, I was going to ask you about flight alerts. So would you have to go to every single list? I guess it's like Scotch Cheap Flights and whoever else and like you just sign up for like 10 lists or yeah, I mean, what's the best way to make sure that you're getting these flight alerts? Yeah, absolutely. I do get multiples. Um Partly because I've also, um, you know, I'm a travel writer and, and I write about flights. So a lot of them offer them to me. And so I'm just like, sure, send them to me. Um, and then I'll just get on the list for them. I like Scott's Cheap Flights because they have a perma-free list. So you wouldn't get all the deals, but you can stay on with them through the free list without ever having that upsell, without ever feeling like your credit card was charged without you knowing it, which I know is a source of uh, concern for a lot of people. Um, Like the Dollar Flight Club, I get their emails and things like that. And people say, you know, they've gotten charged after the free trial. Um, So it can be really challenging for people in that sense when they feel like, oh, there was a gotcha moment. And that's why I like Scott's Cheap Flights because you can just stay on the free list, but it's, it's truly worth upgrading for like 50 bucks a year to get all of the alerts, all the business class, alerts, all the different everything. Um, and so I would just, I'm, I'm part of so many maps flights is, you know, definitely tried to be Scott's cheap flights was the same thing, just the name of the person and then flight. Um, but he actually has some pretty good deals every now and then for our domestic flights. I see a lot of domestic deals there. Um, and so like $39 one way flight to Chicago, Vegas, you know, San Francisco. And so I do sign up and I, I get as many of them as I can and just keep my eye on the pulse. And so because of that, I guess I also feel very optimistic because I'm constantly seeing three, four, $500 round trip flights in my inbox. So I'm not feeling overwhelmed. Like if, you know, any flight is going to be four figures moving forward. I do feel like there are deals out there. Um, and, and I just keep my finger on the pulse for that. Okay. Yeah, I've been uh, scrolling through this map view and it's actually very addicting. It uh, It's almost uh, too tempting. It's like, ooh, Barcelona, 54 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, more people need to do that. Pick, let the destination, you know, come to you, not the other way around. I like it. Um, 
talking a moment for about the like the very cheap airlines like the easy jets and uh and you know the the frontier airlines and whatnot of the world do you feel like it is still a good deal like even if you have to add a bag because i i can't like i can't i'm always gonna do carry on only mm-hmm. but i i need the two pieces you know what i mean i need the backpack and i need the the carry on hard shell roller like you know little suitcase thing and so to be able to do the two pieces, typically on, on these discount airlines, you, you got to pay a little extra. So how, how do you like think about that? Do you know that you're going into it as like a one bagger, a one, you know, one, one piece of luggage? Or how do, you, how do you think about it? That's usually the case for European airlines. And European airlines also have uh, weight limits on your bags. And so that can kind of crush your plan, even if you do decide to be carry on only because your bag is more than 20 pounds and suddenly it doesn't count. Um, So I've had that happen before and it's definitely a pain. Uh, I try to look at it almost like a layaway plan. So if I can just book that $9 flight right now, and then like a few weeks later when I'm ready, I'll add the bag or I'll choose if I want to add the seat assignment. Um, Those are usually the two things that you're adding are the bag and the seat assignment. Beyond that, everything else can be avoided. I have literally four different types of headphones that I bring with me on every plane. So it doesn't matter what headphone jack you have. I have a pair of headphones to fit that. I never have to pay your two to $5 for a pair of headphones. I bring my own entertainment, you know, downloaded to my phone through Netflix or whatever the case may be. So I always have TV that I can watch. I never have to pay for any onboard entertainment. I bring my own water, my own refillable water bottle um, that I can bring on board. So I never have to pay for those drinks. I bring my own snacks. Um, So I bring as much as I can with me. And really the only things that you can't get are a seat assignment, which sometimes, you know, it's worth it when you're going on a cross Atlantic flight to just be like, yeah, I'm going to pay the $50 for the window or aisle seat. So I'm not stuck in the middle. Um, but sometimes also you can just aim to sit in the back. And if you see that the middle seat isn't taken, maybe you'll luck out, get an empty seat next to you, get a full row. Um, so there are kind of strategies you can, you can employ in that sense. And I just look at it like a, like a layaway plan. Like you can pay a little bit now, a little bit later. And if you spread out the expenses too, it can make it seem less overwhelming. Unless they're going to charge you more for your bag, you know, later on, in which case you should buy it whenever it's the least amount of money to buy it. If you know, you absolutely have to bring a bag. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it can be, it really changes the dynamics of it. I wish you could filter knowing that you want to, to have like, you know, the two, two pieces of carry on. Cause then you have to kind of like go through the process click through everything, see how much it's going to cost. Okay. I'm looking at one now, easy jet. It's like 46 bucks for the, you know, the, the, the cabin bag. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I wish I could just see it up front. I think Google actually does have a filter that you can apply for like baggage included or not included kind of thing. Doesn't get you mm-hmm. the price. So I agree that that could be made a little bit more transparent, but you, you definitely have searching options if you wanted to filter by that. Yeah, they kind of do actually. Damn. I'm kind of learning. I'm learning. <laughs> this is good. This is good. Um, so let's talk a bit about the 12 trips in 12 months challenge. So this is something that you originally did in 2017. It's really the theme of what's going to be your your, your first um, published book. And you said that you're also looking to inspire other people to do a similar challenge and build a bit of a community around the 12 and 12. So tell us a little bit about what that challenge is going to look like. 
Absolutely. So I've noticed that a lot of people have similar objections when it comes to travel. They'll say like, oh, this doesn't apply to me. I can't do this because I don't have the time off or I can't do this because I can't afford the flights or things like that. So my goal is to really tackle those objections and make it easy for people. And some people too are just scared to make their first trip somewhere by themselves. And so having people do baby steps. So if it's something where your January challenge might be, you know, take yourself out for a date in your own city, go to a museum that you haven't been to, you know, try going to the movies or dinner alone and start there. Um, and then once you do, you know, tag me in that post and you'll be entered to win, you know, something from that monthly giveaway. Cause I'm going to have giveaways every month that are travel related. So maybe a Scott's chief flight membership or a Delta gift card or something of the like. So Hopefully that incentivizes people to get out there and do it and then work their way up to doing a big international solo trip, you know, things like that, sharing flight deals as much as I can. So if I see something where JetBlue's having a sale and they have $29 flights, you know, I can share that in the Patreon group and, and people would know and they could take advantage, you know, behind the scenes of how it is that I booked my flight. So what were the exact steps I took to find a flight nonstop to Athens that I could get with the points and miles that I had? Just kind of being more open and transparent because I'll be going through the challenge myself. Athens is the first trip, uh, but I have a list of places I want to go to, largely inspired by TikTok, actually. Like there's a place in Guatemala where you can eat pizza that's made on a volcano. And that sounds really cool. I want to go get me some volcano pizza. Um, so I'll share, you know, how did I find those flights? How did I end up booking accommodations there? And that'll all hopefully be in the community and inspire people. So the goal is to not just show you what I'm doing, but also give you tactics to replicate it and encourage you to take baby steps so you can work up the courage to take big trips. Yeah, that's awesome. And so who would be like the, the ideal person to that you would want to inspire to do this challenge? Women at a point in transition. So I think a lot of women in particular get, get stuck or they feel that they give so much of themselves to other people, to their career, to what their family expects of them, things like that. So women that are, you know, possibly thinking about starting a new career, women that are going through a breakup, women that have been super single forever and are approaching a milestone birthday and want to feel better about themselves versus feeling like they're always in the Christmas card as like the token single person, right? Um, and so women that I think could use travel as a way to be healing and a way to better appreciate their lives as it is. Because I think so many of us spend time thinking about what our lives should look like to be society, you know, socially acceptable to what my mom thinks my life should look like, what my friends are doing, all of those things. I think it's something that so many women get caught up in. And so using travel as a way to be like, hey, your life is really amazing right now. And you could be in front of the pyramids of Giza. You could be climbing Machu Picchu and doing all these things to make your life the most that it is right now instead of wishing for time to fast forward and for you to meet all of these external circumstances that don't necessarily ensure your happiness. So kind of taking back your own power in that sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is something that I, I actually think about a lot because I want my Latin life to be um, to be open to women as well and not to, ju to just be a, a men thing. But I feel like it often is more men that are willing to be like, 
okay, I'm going to straight up move to another country. You know, it's, it's a very huge commitment. Um, but our, I imagine that you're seeing that more and more women are doing this. And I'm definitely seeing that more and more women are, you know, becoming digital nomads and, and working online and, and do, you know, going on adventures. Absolutely. Um, I do think men are definitely willing to take risks, but more women actually are solo travelers than men. I think men like to kind of feel like they have that sense of community, a friend that's going with them. Like for instance, my brother didn't go to Japan because his friends left them behind. And I was like, just go by yourself. And he's like, no. Um, and so I do think that there are women out there who have become these intrepid solo travelers. And that once they go, statistics show that they're likely to take another trip. It's almost like getting a tattoo. It's addictive. Mm -hmm. Um, mm. and, and you start to really enjoy the feeling that comes with it. So it's not, but it's not an easy first step to take. And it does come in large part because of so much that's expected of women to be the caretakers, to give of themselves to others, to put their family first, you know, whether it's children, whether it's their boyfriends, whether it's their, you know, their parents, um, because so many parents instill fear in their daughters, you know, you're going to go to that place. That's crazy. Why would you do that? You're going to get human trafficked. Um, like a bunch of different things that are just that make women hesitate to go when in reality, I think that, you know, if you can live alone anywhere, you can, you can be a solo traveler. It's just a matter of ex exercising common sense, doing research ahead of time that that does wonders, you know, before my first couple of big solo trips, I researched everything. I was such a nerd. I'd be like, okay, it says it's going to take me six minutes to walk from the hotel to the train station. And then these are all the times that the trains are going to come like 1106, 1121, 1132. Like, so, and so if it, if I don't make this one, there's this next one, here's the emergency numbers to call. Like here's where I can eat within that radius. I would look at Google street view to get an idea. So there is something to be said for like knowledge is power. And so it can help you feel familiar with the destination even before you go there if you've done thorough research. And that can kind of be a safety blanket for your first couple of trips alone. Yeah, that's it's honestly really interesting what you said about how women are more likely to, to be in solo travelers where men maybe travel in, I guess, wolf packs. <laughs> I mean, uh, it kind of makes sense though. Or do you, do you find that women... Um, uh, how would I put it? Like, I, I, I definitely do see lots of women who will only travel in groups because they really need that support or just to know that there's someone there kind of like backing them up from like a safety perspective and everything like that. Um, I, I, I guess I see a bit of both. Like, what are some of the big like challenges and, and, and questions and thought process processes that uniquely face women? Yeah, that's, there's so many of those safety being the biggest one, right? Like, am I going to know anybody there? Am I going to look like a tourist? Am I going to get harassed? Am I going to be wearing something that's appropriate for the culture? Or will a ton of men, you know, decide that they want to hit on me, harass me, all those things just because I'm there. I saw somebody recently on a solo female travel group that actually went to India as her first solo trip. And I was like, oh, wow. That was super bold. Um, like I would not pick that as my first solo trip. That's not an easy place to travel to, and it's not an easy place to go as a woman. So mm -hmm. that would 
definitely not be my recommendation. So I think people should start off somewhere where they're comfortable. I think having a language like that you speak is really important. And there's so many English speaking places around the world. Like you can go to Ireland, you can go to New Zealand, you know, you can go to so many places where you don't have to add the the trouble of a language barrier when you're first starting out. I just think it helps make it innately easier. And then I think women worry about, you know, carrying their valuables around and feeling like an easy target for getting robbed or mugged. I think women worry about going to sleep and being safe and having somebody break into their room or things like that. And there's so many horror stories that you see online. Um, And I've, you know, I feel safe in a lot of the places where I'm traveling. I usually will search before I stay in a hotel and I'll actually specifically search the reviews for things like solo safety, things like that. I use all the locks and that's why I don't stay in hostels. I use all the locks so that it's, there's a deadbolt between me and the rest of the world. And then there's specific tools that are designed for women, right? Like the doorstop that you put under the door and then it ends up, you know, blaring out a huge alarm. If somebody opens it or moves the door, they have a whole kind of jam that you can use to jam the locks like it's a whole contraption and so it makes it so that you make that lock even more secure and difficult to open and I think those are all considerations that women have because we're constantly being scared of uh, being under attack looking vulnerable you know being kidnapped all those things whereas a man could just be like whatever I'm just gonna walk around and if anybody comes near me I'll punch him um and so (laughs) (laughs) um so it's just a, a much less of a concern that's interesting. And so what do you do to help uh, uh, lessen these fears that, that women have? I think first and foremost, it really helps to connect with somebody on the ground beforehand. So I love going into solo female travel groups. Actually, the solo female travelers is uh, one of my favorite groups on Facebook. It's run by my friends, Megan Marr. And so they have a community of, I think, um, almost 100,000, if not more so already, women on there. And so I would go and I would search past posts about a particular destination. I would try to connect with a woman who's already living on the ground so that she can give me real advice. Like, what is it like there? You know, maybe she even wants to meet up with you when you get there and help orient you. But just having a contact that's local, that knows what's happening there, not just you're, you know, you're reading through forums, but somebody who actually lives there and can give you real advice. I think is invaluable. And there are so many ways to connect with women in that sense. I'm also part of the wonderful community and they're amazing and they have uh, like a home share program and, and a bunch of different ways that you can just get to know women on the ground beforehand. And I think that that is a great resource that's underutilized. And then from there, as I mentioned, all the different tools, you know, carrying even something as like simple as a whistle, most people that are going to attack you don't want to be called out like they they're looking for easy prey. Uh, so always walking. And this is stuff that I gathered from my time living in Baltimore, right? Because going to law school in Baltimore was rough. Like people would get attacked almost every day on the way to school and stabbed or something crazy. And so I took self-defense classes when I was there and we learned from the chief of police that you always like the best self-defense is avoiding a fight. So if you see somebody sketchy, move to the other side of the street, give yourself space to react, give yourself, you know, be aware, walk upright, not looking at your phone. You should know where you're going already. Don't walk with your headphones in, you know, you should be listening and aware of things. Don't be afraid to, to make a scene and, and to 
not appear like an easy victim because if you start blowing a whistle like crazy and calling attention to stuff, chances are whoever it is that was just trying to like sneakily mug you is going to be like, okay, she's crazy. I'm just going to pick somebody else. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it helps to be confident and aware in that sense. And then, yeah, having somebody that you know is going to check in on you. So I always send my full itinerary, you know, all the hotels I'm staying at, all the tours I'm doing, everything. I send it to my best friend. I send it to my mom. And somebody is expecting to hear back from me from a certain point in time. They're checking in with me every day. And that's something that makes me feel more secure, just knowing that, I have somebody that's that's looking to hear from me. Like I can't just go missing and nobody's going to wonder where I am, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And these are all concerns that women have to keep in mind. Obviously, dressing less flashy. I don't ever take jewelry with me when I'm traveling, like not even really fake costume jewelry. I just don't wear jewelry because it's not necessary. And I don't think I, I want the added attention or the risk of getting robbed for that. Um, mm-hmm. same thing for any kind of like major techno technology or devices or things like that. I just try to look simple. Um, I wear like a simple dress and I always respect the culture. So if I know that I'm going somewhere in the middle East, I'm going to have something that's going to be covering my shoulders. It's going to be covering my knees and that I feel is not getting me unwarranted attention. Whereas I was in Jordan and I saw somebody, an influencer who was wearing so like such scantily clad clothing that I really like I feared for her just by association just by seeing her I was like wow that's crazy she's calling so much attention with what she's wearing why would you wear that in Jordan um and she was with her boyfriend who definitely looked like he could punch somebody out um but it's still to me it's it's unnecessarily giving extra attention to yourself um and and you don't need to do that so I think trying to blend in to where you are helps as well Mm mm-hmm yeah, so many so many questions about this, but I also want to be respectful of your time. Um, I do have one question though, which is that uh, you know you are kind of a I, I would imagine kind of an expert on female solo travel and and female digital nomad community. What differences do you see between like the male digital nomad community and like the female digital nomad community? And maybe that's a broad question, so maybe I could narrow that down a bit. But I can tell you that like most men in the Western world, like they kind of really do want to leave. Like most Canadian men like really want to leave Canada. Most guys in Boston and New York City, they just know it's just like not, you know what I mean? Like they know they can leave and go somewhere tropical and and pay zero tax and work online and the parties are better and stuff like that. And they're they, like men just seem very down with the idea of like getting multiple passports learning languages, doing James Bond stuff, getting residency permits and stuff like that. Like what, what are, um, like, do you think women could be, could like are into that as well? And, or like, um, I, I think I, I understand like for women, they have sort of different, um, desires and stuff They're I think they're, you know, they're more on the spirituality path. They're definitely, you know, a lot on the sort of like self-discovery path. Um, it's kind of funny. It's like, it's almost like we travel for different reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do have a lot of female friends that have done that and they have, you know, moved and are constantly on the go. I think there's an element of loneliness to it. I think that's a big distinction. Uh, I know when I was traveling at a bunch of places and didn't have a home base, it felt like 
everyone that you meet, especially on like dating apps or just out in groups or things. And the people are like, oh, you're only going to be here for a week. Awesome. And for men, that's like, great. I get to have all these different hookups. But for women, it can feel really lonely and isolating. And like, you're not able to make a meaningful connection beyond the week or so that you're in that space, beyond the month that you're in that space, that none of your relationships Mm -hmm. can really last because you're always on the go. And I think that that leads to loneliness, not just romantically, but also with friendships as well. When you're constantly having to start over, find new friends, things like that, um, it can feel really difficult on the road. I think that 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 is a common problem that women face, even for the women that don't want to be in romantic relationships. And like you said, are just on their own path of self-discovery. It's just hard to start over and it's hard to feel like you have a timeline on the relationships that you're building. Um, And it makes it difficult to build meaningful relationships when you know you're not going to be there for a long time. So I do think that that's something I've seen women face. I do think that it also, you tend to sometimes miss your family, you miss your friends, you miss that sense of familiarity. Um, Not necessarily that, you know, a lot of people say they come back and they come back changed and, you know, even their regular life doesn't seem appealing because they've since seen so many other things around the world. And that's definitely a very real phenomenon that happens um, where you come back and you can't relate to your family or your friends, or you feel like they don't understand you and they're not interested in hearing about your trips. And that too can be lonely and isolating because you feel then like, well, where is my community? And Who can I connect with? And I think we're all social creatures and we all want to feel that bond. And I think that's why it's so important to find that community in any way that you can. I know that myself as a travel blogger, I look forward to going to travel conferences because that's where I'll meet up with my friends from all over the world. Uh, I know I get sad when I meet somebody and I think, you know, this is probably the last time I'm going to see them, even though we had a great connection and that can go for anything, even just like a a friend that you make along the way. When I lived in Australia for a month, I I definitely cried at the end of that because I was like, man, I made some good friends here and I'll probably never see them again. Um, Because Australia is a really expensive ticket for most people. Uh, And it's, it's far, it's literally across the world. And so we keep in touch over social media, but it's, it's not the same as the in-person connection. And so it can feel isolating And it can feel like you don't have roots. It can feel like, you know, it can just get tiring after a while. I think that's why most people tend to tap out after like five years, 10 years on the road. And again, this is a generalization because I have a friend that comes to mind and she's like, I don't want any babies. And I have been traveling for 10 plus years and I have a wonderful life. So it absolutely depends on the kind of person. But I think in general, it's really important to find some sense of community to make you feel like you're grounded, even when you're constantly floating from place to place. Yeah, community is definitely important. Leads me to a question, Jen. So what what drives you when you travel? Why do you travel? I travel because I think it's so easy to get stuck in a daily bubble, a daily rut, your own ruminations about, you know, anxiety over the future, depression about the past. Uh, I think it's so easy, especially in the U.S. when we're constantly bombarded with just a lot of media conditioning, societal conditioning, things of the sort. And travel is the first time, you know, everybody always told me like, just live in the now. And I was like, okay, like easier said than done, or just meditate or all these things. And I'm like, meditating is literally impossible. Travel is the first time I realized how to live in the moment. So when you travel, you can't worry about 
the future because you're too busy in the moment soaking up everything that's happening right then and there. When you're dropped in a new place and you've just landed in Athens, you're smelling the Athens air. You're listening to the sounds of the streets there. You're very aware as to like where you're going, what's happening. You are actually living in the moment without having to force yourself to do so. It's just something that comes naturally when you're in a new place because your senses are bombarded with everything new and you have to take in everything new. You're talking to all new people, you're eating new foods. And so everything keeps you right there in the moment. And I do think that there's something to be said for having that feeling of presence, for having that feeling like, okay, I'm, I'm here right now and I'm going to enjoy this moment right now and I'm going to make the most of it because it's only for a limited time kind of thing. And, and I love that. It was just a shortcut to that mindset that everybody was saying I needed to adopt, but I was having such a hard time doing in my own daily bubble, in my own you know routine. And so that's why I love traveling. I also love just seeing how wrong we are about a lot of places. I think, you know, (laughs) yeah, like there's so many, like people just tell you all the time, oh, you're going there. Oh, why would you ever go there? You know, that's a super unsafe place or everybody there is X. And so it, it just helps to go and see for yourself, um, and realize that a lot of these places, I I really think everybody around the world is the exact same. Everybody around the world are humans. They just want to be loved. They want to be understood. They want to have a sense of connection. They want to feel successful. They want to have purpose. Like humans are all motivated by the same thing. And I love that you can see that like, it's not because geographically they're across the world in this other place. And then that makes them drastically different than you. They are the exact same people as you with different cultures, different traditions, but ultimately we're all the same and we're all just going around trying to live our lives. You know, you'll still see people talking about dating apps in, in Thailand and like, you know, in the same way that girls will be talking about it in Starbucks in New York city. So it's really just eye-opening to see that all these places that people tell you not to go to are actually really wonderful places with wonderful people. Yeah, I agree with all that. Um, Do you think that community is more important for female travelers than men? I think community is important for everyone, but I think it can feel a little bit harder for women to establish just because it does require you being an extrovert to an extent, right? Like you have to actively go out and find it. Um, When I was in Australia for a few weeks uh, during law school, I was there for six weeks and I like the first week was cool. It was fun. It was like kind of touristy, but then the reality of living there set in and I was like, Ooh, like I want to do stuff. How can I find people to do stuff with them? You know? And so I would send myself out to Spanish speaker meetups because there's really not that many people in Australia that speak Spanish natively. And so I was like, I'll have the benefit and everybody's going to want to converse with me because I'm going to be like the native Spanish speaker. Uh, So I'll be like the best one in this meetup. And I did make a lot of friends that way. I made friends from Yemen, from Italy, from the Philippines. um, And that was great, but it was, it took a lot for me to like, let me find this meetup. Let me take myself there by myself. Let me walk into a room of strangers and just start talking to people. I have been conditioned to do that because I always have been in teams and activities that lended to that. Like I did Model UN where I had to learn how to work my way around a room of 400 people and like get people to like me kind of thing. And so I've 
to an extent been trained to do that. And like, I know how to dismiss myself from a conversation. So I'm not always in the same circle for the whole night, but I can actually rotate around a room and meet a lot of people. These are learned skills. It's going to take practice. None of this comes innately. You never lose the nerve, right? I remember when I was meeting one of the people I had met at the meetup and they were like, oh, come out to the club. And I remember like getting dressed and walking there and being like, I can't believe I'm going to walk into this club by myself and like, hope I see the people there. Let's hope this all works out. Um, And I had a great time and it did all work out, but there's so much nerves and anticipation going into it. And you really have to kind of just push yourself out of the comfort zone and out of your own head and your own hesitations, because ultimately it is worse in your head than it actually is. Ultimately, things do usually work out, but we worry so much and we want to control the outcome and we want to, you know, just have everything work out perfectly. And, and maybe it will and maybe it won't. But I think that the more that you put yourself out there, the more that you practice making new friends, the more that you try to find that community, um, then the easier it gets. Mm-hmm. All right, Jen, I have one last question for you because you've, yeah, you're such a podcast expert. What was the best podcast interview you've ever had and what made it memorable? Mm, that's a hard one. Um, for some reason, the one that's coming to mind for me right now is the Travel Tales podcast that I did uh, with my friend Mike. And so it was memorable because he asked about um, – we talked about the Greek guy that I met in my challenge in my 12 trips in 12 months challenge that I met in Athens. And then I went back and took like three planes and two ferries to go rendezvous with this Greek guy that ended up having like six baby showers while I was there for 48 hours. And like, I was 10 years older than he told me he was. And so we laughed a lot. We laughed a lot about that story and about like, you know, kind of the Greek version of the Hispanic papichulos um, and like what they do to try to sway women. Like he had given me a rose during the, the first time that we met from one of the vendors there in, in Athens. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that was just funny because it was, you know, it was, it was funny. We laughed a lot and it was personable and it felt like, um, yeah, it just felt like a story I don't really talk about often and that I don't really it's in my book, but I definitely, it's not my proudest moment to have gone all the way around the world for like a Greek fisherman that was not like, you know, like, um, and so I think it was very vulnerable, but also done in a really lighthearted way. And he, we just, we just cracked up over it. So that tends to be one of my more memorable ones. And I've also met up with him um, since then in, in Puerto Rico when he came to visit. And so I, I do think about that, that episode a lot. You met up with the Greek guy or the or the host? No, Greek guy and me did not work out, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> he said I couldn't tell anybody I was on the island to see him. He like owned a bar there, and he's like, "You can't tell anybody you're here to see me." I'm like, "Well, why did I just come all the way? Like, and I can't even tell people I'm here to see you. Like, that's crazy." Um, it was nuts. It was nuts. Um, but no, Mike, he, he had come down to the island for a conference, and so I met up with him here, and and I follow him generally. He's very funny. Uh, he used to do acting. And so sometimes he puts up like really kind of cringy commercials from the eighties that he was part of. Uh, so he's just really lighthearted and funny guy. And it's, it's fun talking to him. Okay. Awesome. I will take a look at that. Um, sweet Jen, this is, this has been a a really fun episode. I'm glad we, we finally got to catch up and, and, and make an episode happen. 
Um, so yeah, I would love for, for you to kind of promote, uh, anything that you want to talk about, any of your, uh, future projects and whatnot. Absolutely. So if you want to join my 12 trips and 12 months challenge, uh, you can find it on Patreon at, at Patreon slash 12 trips and 12 months. And you can follow me at jenonajetplane.com. And my books are on Amazon under Jen Ruiz and be on the lookout for the memoir coming out in fall 2023. And Twitter as well, at Jen on a Jet Plane. Yes, find me on Twitter. I'll be reposting a whole lot of pitching opportunities for anyone who wants to become a travel writer. Awesome, Jen. Thank you so much for joining us on another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. It was fun. Thanks so much, fans. <laughs>